0: I'm eager to share with you uh, from God's word. I'd like to invite you to turn to Isaiah 49. There's a section of Isaiah 49 that is familiar perhaps to some of us and that is verses 13 through 16. Those more narrow verses will be our focus. But I want to read a larger section uh, beginning in verse 8 through verse 23. So let's read. Isaiah 49, and I'll read beginning in verse 8. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages saying to the prisoners come out to those who are in darkness appear they shall feed along the ways on all barren heights shall be their pasture they shall not hunger or thirst neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devoured land and your devastated land, surely now... You will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone from where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame may god bless the preaching of his word it's one of the the facts of life that we're always forgetting things we're always leaving things Behind, even things that matter to us. There was one interview uh, with someone who works in Lost and Found for the Airline Southwest. I heard this interview. Um, He said just that the sheer volume of things that are left behind on planes is overwhelming. So he said, You walk into their warehouse, and there's just hundreds and hundreds of coats. Everywhere, He said they get crazy amounts of cell phones, iPads, iPods, laptops. In the interview, he was saying that he always finds it a bit sad because he knows every one of those people had that pit in their stomach when they realized, wait, where's my phone? Where's my wallet? Where's my camera? But you won't believe the things that people have left behind. This is left behind on airplanes. They generally divide them into low-value and high-value items, but people have left behind on airplanes a bag of diamonds, Uh, A panda suit, a prosthetic leg, a parrot, you know, the guy gets into his Uber, he's like, wait, where's my parrot? A beautiful uh, double bass instrument, a glass eye, dentures, a handwritten marriage proposal, a wedding dress, and more. It is is part of the human condition, a part of our frailty, that we are always forgetting things. When, When my wife Megan leaves the house and there's one thing that I need to do while she's gone, I'm good. But if there are two things, I'm like, hold on, I need to make a list. I, uh, this mind of mine, right, as incredible as it is, cannot possibly remember two things to do while you are gone. And so I write it out and make, make the list. Now here's the thing. We tend to think that God is like us so that when troubles come into our lives, we wonder if we have been forgotten. We wonder if God has left us behind, if God has abandoned us. And it is the heart of God today to minister to us. As his sons and daughters, God is on a mission to minister to us through the power of his Holy Spirit to minister to those who wonder because of life circumstances. Has the Lord forgotten me? Verse 13 Contains this glorious call to praise God, to praise Him with songs of joy and shouts of praise because of all that the Lord has done for His people. He is a great and glorious God. In fact, in the first half of this chapter, we encounter the servant of the Lord. Servant sometimes refers to the people of Israel, at other times, it clearly refers to an individual who would come to redeem Israel from their trouble. Verse 5 says that this servant was set apart in the womb to bring God's people back to himself. Verse 6 goes further saying that the servant will be a light for the nations. He will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When verse 7 says that he would be, and this is just before the part that we read, but do you see that in verse 7? Deeply despised and abhorred by many. It's a description of His sufferings and His death through which He won our salvation. When Jesus came into the world, then He declared it to be, verse 8, the day of salvation. Verse 9 goes on to say that Jesus, who is this servant, says to prisoners, come out. He says to those who are in darkness, appear. Before Christ came, we were prisoners in darkness. We were bound by sin and death. Christ died the death that we deserve to bring us back to God and he promises to lead his people like sheep to good pasture so that verse 10, they will not hunger and thirst for God will lead them and guide them. He will be the provision of his people. He will be the protection of his people. And verse 12 points forward to that great day not simply when the Jewish people would return from Babylon, but to a much greater day when people would gather from every nation, from every tribe and tongue to praise this God for the salvation that He has won. So it's no wonder, following that, right, that verse 13 explodes with praise. Everyone is called to sing the praises of God. There is worldwide joy because the Savior of the world has come. Verse 13: Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But, this is immediately following, verse 14. Sing for joy. But, verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Isaiah here is addressing a future generation who would be held captive in Babylon, driven out of their land as Zion lays in ruins. The the whole Old Testament book of Lamentations captures just how devastating that moment was for the people of God. This is addressed to that future generation that is in exile. And God says, sing for joy. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of exile, sing for joy, break forth into singing. We're called to rejoice, but so often our circumstances seem to make that impossible. We feel like we have been abandoned by the God who is calling us to rejoice, sing for joy, but our hearts do not respond. And we say, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You remember the experience of the the toys in the movie Toy Story 3? Right? and these toys are trying to get his attention because he's grown up, 17 years old, and he's become interested in other things and he's going off to college. So they feel alone, they feel neglected, they feel left behind. And that movie taps into that desire we all have to be loved, to be appreciated. And so Woody, Buzz Lightyear, and the others spend most of the film feeling forgotten, feeling abandoned. They're accidentally donated to a daycare center, Sunnyside Daycare, where most of the toys have stories of being abandoned, being forgotten. And then Lotso, the purple bear, takes them in. Of course, that works out perfectly or not. It's a story of Abandonment that wrestles with this experience. And it's important for us to know that this is a common experience among the people of God. We experience this same sense of abandonment in our own lives, and we should not be surprised by it. And it, so this is a spiritual condition, this, this sense of abandonment. And it is, it's a spiritual condition that cannot be treated simplistically. God's with you, do your devotions, cheer up. It's never as easy as saying God has not deserted you. Because there are times when God does withdraw a sense of his presence from us. You know, the Puritans talked about this category. They talked about spiritual desertions. In fact, just a few chapters later in Isaiah 54 verses 7 and 8, it references those moments that we are deserted by God. God says for a moment, I deserted you. Those moments that he also uses this language, he hides his face from us. We don't experience his nearness. We don't live in the light of his countenance. We struggle to believe the truth. We lack a sense of his love for us. Our fellowship with Christ is disrupted. The darkness becomes intense and does not lift and we feel forsaken and forgotten by God. This is an experience that the psalmists were familiar with. In Psalm 13, verses one and two, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And you know, there's a sense in which this particular form of trial is the, the greatest challenge and trial that the Christian will ever face. We can face the greatest difficulties and unimaginable loss when we have a sense of God's nearness. But when we are spiritually deserted and when the Lord hides his face from us, our soul so often has no comfort and we find ourselves in a place of despondency and even despair. I want to tell you a story of a woman named Amy. Um, a true story. Amy, Amy vividly recalls her own moment of feeling abandoned. She remembers the night she collapsed to her knees beside her bed knowing her wedding ring had to come off. She says, That afternoon, a judge had declared my divorce final. Though the demise of our marriage had appeared inevitable for a while, I hadn't stopped wearing my wedding ring, a symbol of my confidence that no matter how hopeless things looked, God could turn them around in an instant. She says, But now here I was 30 years later, kneeling alone by the side of my bed, sobbing, And it was through this extended trial not long before that that she had been on the verge of what she described as complete mental, emotional, and physical collapse. She was confused. She was greatly troubled by God allowing her life to be so excruciatingly painful. She describes it as a true spiritual crisis in her life. She said this, Where was this God I had been counting on? Was he real? If he was, did he care? She says, I was in no shape to compose an articulate prayer. There was a lot of sobbing and groaning. When I could form words, I cried out. I could never watch someone I love suffer like this and not stop it. You say you love me, but I can't square that with what is happening. This feels cruel. I've got to know you are who you say you are or I cannot go on. That's the experience of verse 14. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And relational disappointment can be what brings us there. The loss of employment can be what brings us there. Serious illness in ourselves or in a family member or another person we love can make us wonder how long God will hide his face. The death of a family member or a friend can lead us to feel forgotten by God. When we experience injustice, when others sin against us, when unjust criticism comes, we cry out to God, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Friends, brothers and sisters, I wonder how much this experience relates to some of you today. It may be that what God's doing today is preparing you for future experiences like this. But it may be that what God is doing is speaking directly into our own experience today. Does the Lord currently, presently feel far from you? Have your circumstances tempted you to believe that the Lord has forgotten you? Does it, you know he loves you. You know objectively these things are true. But do you feel like the Lord is not attentive to your concerns? Are you experiencing your own spiritual desertion? God doesn't meet you in that only to say or to say at all, I don't care about your circumstances, just block those things out and sing for joy. He doesn't come and deal harshly with us, bringing rebuke to his people in their struggles. Instead, what we see here is that he reasons with us and he reminds us of his love. He gives three pictures of compassion, reassurances, God has these for each one of us regardless of what our current circumstances are. We may be walking in rich experiences of fellowship with God and yet he comes to us wherever we are as his children and he reminds us of these realities. There are three pictures of compassion that immediately follow. So there's the call to sing for joy, but then the sense of forgottenness and then three pictures that God counters that with. The loving mother, the engraved hands, and the restored walls. The first image, the loving mother. In verse 15, in order to convince us of the depth of his affection for us, because we stand in constant need of being convinced and having our hard hearts persuaded of the riches of his love for us. So God compares his love for us to the love of a mother nursing a child. You know how much a mother is attached to a child. There's this remarkable bond of dependence and affection. In case you didn't know, with, with fathers it is a bit different. I'm not saying this to stereotype men. I'm, I'm stating the fact that children never draw their life from their father, either in the womb or after birth in nursing. Yes, men and women are different, uh, contrary to what our culture may say. And here, God compares himself to a mother for a reason. You know, I was thinking about this. My specialty as a parent is letting the baby cry. Like, that's my, I think we're going to have to let the baby cry. All right, I am so here for that. Let's go. I can let the baby cry. Every time I've held a baby, this includes the sixth child we had, the nurse actually asked me, you sure you've done this before? You know, I love kids, but uh, yeah, just, you know, I think that the baby wants to be held a bit more closer and comfort. My gift, though, is helping the toddler who falls down learn that it's not that big a deal by ignoring him. You know? If kids know where the first aid kit is at, then they can take care of it themselves is my philosophy when it comes to parenting. A mother's heart, we use that expression, right? A, A mother's heart is different. A mother's heart is full of tenderness and compassion. Can a mother forget? Can a mother have no compassion, says the text. It is generally the case that mothers won't abandon and forget their children. But in case we bring an objection, well, what about mothers who fail? What about mothers who fundamentally fail to nourish their children? Or what about mothers who abuse their children? So, God adds that mothers may forget, that's a possibility, but with God, it is impossible, Even these may forget, he says, yet I will not forget you. In other words, God's attachment to us is not equal to the mother-baby relationship. It is far greater. God wants us to meditate on the very best of a mother's love and then consider the heavenly Father's love for you is even stronger, is even greater, is even more reliable. The greatest of earthly loves may cease and fail, but God's love for us will never fail. We may be deserted for a time, but we are not rejected and forgotten. As God's children, we are often disciplined, but we are never abandoned. You know, there may be times when a loving mother will let a baby cry. Or that mother may be out of sight for a time. But it would be very wrong for the baby to conclude that the mother has forgotten and forsaken. Babies are sometimes slow to learn that a mother always hears, that a mother always returns eventually, that the mother is not gone for good. What happens in our moments of unbelief is not that God has forgotten us, but that we have forgotten his character, his goodness, his faithfulness to us in Christ. That's the first image, the loving mother. Second, the engraved hands. The engraved hands. Verse 16, the Lord says to us gloriously, consider this image. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So the the first image of the mother communicates the depth and the strength of God's love. Here we have an image of the permanence of his love. His love will not end. His love is not going away. Here's what, some of where this this imagery even comes from. Ordinarily in ancient culture, the master's name would be written on the servant's hand. So the servant never forgets who he belongs to. Here, gloriously, extraordinarily, it's reversed. It is the master who writes our names, the names of wretched sinners upon his hand. And that word behold, we don't tend to use that much in our own common language. But behold is a word calling us to look and see. So when God says, behold, I have engraved, it's as if God is wanting us to see his hands held out for us with our names written upon them. We see our names there engraven on his hands. As if etched into stone etched into the skin right? this is engraved this this is not a removable tattoo that rubs off in a few days this is not uh, Crayola's washable markers or writing with invisible ink this is engraving and here's something more on this side of the cross we have the confidence of knowing that our names are written on the hands of the one who was pierced for us But just as Jesus, there's that account in John 20 where it says that he says, see, behold, look at my wounds. Jesus holds out his wounded hands to us and says, my name, your name is engraved upon them. It's a, it's a glorious picture of the depth of his love for us. He would remind us of what he did for us in his death as that demonstration of the love of God. Your name has been written on the hands of the Savior never to be removed. Because He gave His life for you. The cross is the pulpit of God's love. The cross stands as that reminder that God will not forget you. He would not give His Son for your salvation only to forget you in the details of your lives. It cannot be. When we feel forsaken, we can remember Christ was forsaken by God. To bear the wrath that we deserve. He was forsaken that we might be welcomed. He was condemned that we might be accepted. He was cast out so that we might be brought near. His hands were pierced so that our names might be forever written on His hands. And it's at that point that Charles Wesley wrote, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fear. Soul, if you are experiencing fear, if you are experiencing guilt, shake that off. Why? Because the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. Christian, nothing... Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God will not forget His own. He will love and keep you till the end. Your names have been written on His hands. Behold the engraved hands. Your name upon them. Image three. For the comfort of our souls. For the strengthening and upbuilding of our souls even now. The restored walls. Second part of verse 16. Actually might not appear immediately encouraging to us. But I've got something glorious for you here. Um, Your walls are continually before me. Okay. Loving mother, get it. Name engraved on the hands. Glorious. Your walls are continually before me. Okay. Well, remember the context. This is, this is in fact an absolutely shocking statement for the Israelites in exile. Your walls, the walls of Jerusalem, the walls of the beloved city, are continually before me. Now here's the most important thing you need to know about the walls God is referring to at the time he was addressing these people. The walls were in ruins. The walls were in ruin. The walls were not standing. Babylon had destroyed those walls in Jerusalem and had taken the people captive. And the sorrow and the agony of that destruction was unbearable for the people of God. They looked upon the ruins of their hopes. They looked upon the destruction of their dreams, the loss of their sense of identity and joy, and they wept bitterly as the people of God. And here God comes to them in their sorrow, in their despair, and says, your walls are continually before me. To which they say, God, what walls? I don't see walls. I see wreckage. I see ruins. I see the mess that is my life. And these ruins seem to be the proof that you don't care. God, if you were with us, the walls would still be standing. If you hadn't forgotten me, things wouldn't be this way. But the Lord says, my child, where you see ruins, I see walls. Those places in your life that you think are the proof of divine abandonment are seen by your God in a totally different way. That God sees walls is a statement of his future purpose for his people. God brings blessing out of the rubble of our lives. My God uses the ruins of sin and failure to make masterpieces for His glory. From these ashes, He makes beauty. In this suffering, He has purpose. Your walls are continually before the Lord and there is nothing that can thwart the purposes of God for your life. Joseph... Saw one hardship after another. He's thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. But all along, God saw walls. Naomi was destitute and abandoned, having lost those closest to her. But God saw walls. For Esther and Mordecai, the days seemed dark and it appeared that evil would triumph. But God saw walls. Simon Peter had failed miserably in denying Christ. Not once, not two times, but three times. But God saw walls and Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. You know, one of the things that I hate about Satan... There are a number of them. We were singing about Satan, right? Satan was in most of our songs. Sing the whole counsel of God. So we we sing truth about the evil one, about the prince of darkness. One of the things I hate about Satan is that he's always pointing to the ruins in our lives. He would have us wallow in misery and hopelessness. He brings accusations and seeks to condemn. He says, you will never change. He says, things will never get better. He says, there is no hope for you. But God says, I look at your life and I see walls. And so... Alan Redpath, commenting on this glorious truth, says if someone feels in his heart the situation is hopeless. And perhaps that's you today. In your heart, you look at a situation and it seems hopeless. If someone says in his heart the situation is hopeless, I say you are looking at the ruins of life while God looks at the walls. You look at what you have been and you are conscious of awful failure, but bless the Lord, He sees you in Christ as what He intends you to be. He sees you as what you long to be in your best moments. He sees you as what you will be when the grace of God has finished the task. This is how our God sees us. God is the master of architect whose plans for us are always before him. And the restored walls come to us as a promise of a better future for God's people. That's what God, is. why I wanted to go on and read much of the rest of this chapter. What God goes on to say in the rest of Isaiah 49, he says to his people, a day is coming when you will be amazed by your fruitfulness. God, God promises to surprise us with the expansion and the growth of his church. In verse 20, so many are added to the people of God, there's not enough room for them all. You know, it is, it is often the case in this world that the church of Christ feels small and helpless. One hymn says with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed. The church sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. The church is messy. The church is full of toil and tribulation and that is why people are so often tempted to give up on it when we see ruins and wreckage. But God says it will not always be this way. Your walls are continually before me. The people of God throughout history have often thought that their generation would be the last. We had thought the work of God done in our generation would fade and die. We had thought that the work of our hands would be in vain. But God promises that from the barrenness, from the oppression, from the weakness, from the ruins of His people, even from us, will come forth a people a new generation who will yet praise the name of their God. He promises it. The mother says in verse 21, I was left alone. From where did these children come? Where will the future abundance of the church come from? Not by Zion's gifting and skill. Not by Zion's wisdom. Not because God's people earned it. Not because we have something really great going on in our church, in our denomination. No, the growth of the people of God and the restoration of the church is the result of the gracious promise of God. In all of verses 17 through 26, God says to the church, those who oppose you and seek your failure will be gone and your children will be more than you can imagine. God is even now Brothers and sisters, purifying for himself a people for his own possession. He gave his son that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what God is doing in his people. I want to close by returning to Amy's story. Remember I shared with you Amy earlier? The day that the judge declared the divorce final was that night that she slipped off her ring. In the midst of great sorrow in that moment, she was in fact at a much different place that night than she had been before in her crisis. That night, she says this, I." she says, I was unable to contain my gratitude for God's persistent love through a mess that should have driven him away. Instead, he came closer than ever. Amy slipped off the ring and prayed a prayer. She said, God, now now I want to give you the devotion I thought I would be giving to an earthly husband. She said that while something was dying, something else was coming to life. She says, I had been changed by the experience of this unstoppable love constantly moving toward me when I was coming to him with nothing to offer but weakness, confusion, and need. And as she got up off her knees, she had the thought, I should get myself a new ring to remind me of this vow that I've made to the Lord tonight. The next morning, Amy met with a a group of women in the church that she regularly prays with. And during an opening time of silence, one of the ladies came over took off a ring, held it out and said, I feel like the Lord wants you to have this ring. He wants you to know that you are his beloved and he is betrothing himself to you for the rest of your life. He will be your protector and provider. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will be with you forever. Amy says the ring she handed me was much more beautiful and valuable than any ring I would have gotten myself. I had mentioned nothing about getting a new ring. She says, I can't tell you how many times in the years since a glance at that ring calmed my fear, filled my loneliness, and comforted me in grief. She says, I wanted a ring to remind me of my commitment to the Lord. Instead, I ended up with one that will forever remind me of his commitment to me. God has given us these three pictures so we remember every day of our lives his commitment to us. So that in moments of darkness, in the midst of fear and loneliness and grief, when it seems as though God has forgotten, the loving mother and the engraved hands and the restored walls would be remembered and that we would be able to rest our troubled souls in the security of God's steadfast love and his wise, sovereign plan for our lives. Grace Church, the Lord loves you. Your name is written on his hands, and his good purposes for you will not fail. Let's pray together. Father, you comfort us with the riches of your truth. In your word, and we thank you for that. We ask that our hearts would be open today and tomorrow and every day this week and on through the remainder of this year to these images and to these great truths of your love for us. Thank you for meeting us in our moments of doubt, in our moments of darkness, in our moments of despair. That even when it seems to us that you are far in those very moments, you delight to draw near, to help us and to comfort us and to strengthen us. Lord, thank you for your great love for us in Christ. May we as your children rest every day in the riches, in the depth, in the permanence of that love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.